Well, now let's turn back again to the Gospel according to Matthew, where we've been reading in this Advent season, and to the verses that Stuart has read to us from Matthew chapter 2. We've been seeing in our studies in the essentially the opening act of Matthew's Gospel that he gives us a series of scenes. There's a background scene in chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, where he has painted a picture that lasts for almost 2,000 years of the way in which, uh, through his powerful providence, and despite the sins and failures of individuals, God has been keeping his most ancient promise. And in some ways, the message, among other things, of that genealogy of Jesus is that this has also been God's most difficult to keep promise. And we should always have these two things in mind. His longest standing promise, that through Abraham's seed, the nations of the world would be blessed, a promise that we experience in its fulfillment, and also the sense that uh, if you took a couple of days to read the Bible accounts of all these individuals, you would realize how, humanly speaking, impossible this promise was to keep. God kept this promise despite the fact that there were people who despised the promise and sought to destroy it. And now as he moves into the second scene in this grand opening act, the focus is on Joseph. And Matthew tells the whole story of the nativity, as it were, through the eyes of Joseph, in distinction from Luke, who tells that story through the eyes of Mary. And this is the reason why we have two different perspectives In a sense, you might say we've got the male view in Matthew. We've got the female view in Luke. And we see that there are these two different people that God has wonderfully prepared in order to be the adopting parents of the Son of God. And I think this is one of the most marvelous things that Matthew brings out by his focus on Joseph that what God is doing in this young couple's life is preparing them for years to be the ones to whom the Lord Jesus will look. Their very breath of love for their Lord will be breathed out by them and breathed in by him. It's a wonderful, wonderful insight into the real humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, it is essential we defend his deity, but his humanity melts us. That he grew, that he watched this couple, that they taught them the word, that they taught him the word of God, that he listened to their prayers, that he watched them 
live for the glory of God. And what Matthew and Luke are telling us is, do you see how well suited God had made this couple to care for his beloved son? But when we come to the section that we began last Sunday afternoon and uh, continue both this morning and this afternoon, we come to a place where it's actually the only place in the nativity where human beings speak. We assume Joseph had a lot to think about and to say, but he didn't speak. In fact, uh, he never seems to speak. But what stands out in Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 to 11 is that people begin to speak. And, you know, as you grow as a human being and gain some discernment, you begin to realize that every time we open our mouths, we give ourselves away or we seek to hide ourselves. And so what we have in these verses is a series of little cameo pictures into the hearts, first of the wise men, and then of the Jewish leaders, and then, of course, into the heart and mind of the man we know as Herod the Great. And I want us to look at these uh, three individuals and groups of people uh, this morning to to see what is it that's happening in their lives. And, of course, very different things are happening, but there's a kind of common thread that runs through the experience of each of them. It's something that's summed up by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Although he's speaking about the death of Christ on the cross, what he says does in a very powerful way apply to the birth of Christ in Bethlehem. And it's this, that men in their own wisdom do not know God. Men in their own wisdom may assume they can find God, but never do. And for this reason, that God's ways in bringing salvation to the world will always be viewed as foolishness by the world because what God does is to show his strength in weakness. And of course, Paul is thinking of the way in which that becomes so clear at the cross, the folly of thinking that salvation would come by someone dying, the folly of thinking that the power of God would be revealed in his weakness. But one of the central messages of the New Testament, indeed the whole of the Bible is, that until that dawns on us, we can never respond to Jesus Christ in faith. And we can never live out the style of the Christian life until we recognize that this is always the way in which God works. Of course, the Apostle Paul had to discover that. He was exactly like these Jewish leaders in this passage. He had to discover that, that the Messiah was different from the Messiah he thought of, that the way of salvation was different from the way he thought of. 
and that the life of God was radically different from the way he thought and that it would be on his weakness that God would encamp. And so the summons in these verses, in a sense, to to each of these individuals and groups is a summons to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and in humility to recognize our need, our inability, and to understand that God has provided in Jesus Christ absolutely everything we need for salvation and for our lives. And we see this, I think, first of all, in the people we call the wise men, these magi. Their story is in so many different ways such a fascinating story. The star in the sky, whatever it was that they followed. It's incredible, really, to think that Matthew, a Jew, is writing this because astrology was regarded as virtually demonic in the Old Testament scriptures. It was a denial of the sovereign Lord. And so here we have astrologers who are Gentiles. And in the marvel of his providence, they see this star in the sky and they decide to follow it. And last Sunday afternoon, when we were asking the reporters questions about these wise men, I asked the question, so why did they do it? To which probably our instinctive response is to say, because they saw the star. But as we saw last time, they belonged to a whole community of wise men, philosophers, astrologers, primitive scientists. Many people saw the star. And so what drew them was not the star in the sky. That was the instrument God used. What drew them was God wonderfully working in their hearts when they did not even realize it. It's such a a story, isn't it? There's There's a wonderful hymn. I think it's an anonymous hymn, and I don't know I've ever heard it sung in this country, but it's sung often elsewhere with this verse in it. I sought the Lord... And afterward, I knew he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. And if any of us has a spiritual pilgrimage, that's the story, isn't it? We, we thought we were We thought we were kind of in control of whatever was happening, whatever we were seeking. We decided to do certain things. And initially we had had no idea that this was actually the fruit of something God was doing in our souls. And so they followed the star and God's hand was on them. They were being led by his providence. But then as they make their way over the border into the Holy Land and they're heading towards Jerusalem because the star seems to be moving in that direction. Actually, 
As we know, it moves a few miles further south, but when they get to Jerusalem, it's at this point that the wisdom of this world takes over. How does it take over? You would just have needed to have looked at Jerusalem to realize that. We've come to find the king. We saw the sign of him in the sky. We're looking for him. We've arrived in Jerusalem. We've seen the palace that the king has built. This is the capital city. We've seen the temple that Herod had restored. It was said by the rabbis, unless you have seen this temple, you have never seen a truly beautiful building. And they drew the logical conclusion. Capital city, grand palace, magnificent temple, king born. And it must be here. And from a human point of view, their human reasoning, which was so radically different from God's reasoning, their human reasoning endangered their whole expedition endangered the king who had been born. Indeed, almost certainly endangered their own lives. And it didn't seem to dawn on them. There's just a little clue here. It didn't seem to dawn on them. You notice they come to Jerusalem in verse 2. They say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. Maybe we need to use our imagination just a little. Some of you have been in situations, maybe in other countries, where you even speak roughly the same language and you've said something and people have scratched their heads, no idea what you're talking about. Even if it's, if, if it's been English. If it's another language or another dialect. And all of these people belong to the same company of languages, but you can understand that if you arrived in Jerusalem where they spoke Aramaic, the, 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 and you see, you think about the question they were being asked. Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? You understand that didn't compute in the minds of the people to whom they were speaking. In a way, it's almost humorous. I had a colleague once who uh, when he was in, in uh, Copenhagen, wanted to see the grave of the great Danish philosopher, theologian, Soren Kierkegaard. And he went to the graveyard where Kierkegaard is buried. And he, he spoke to the attendant, attended, and he, he asked in as fluent Danish as he could muster, where is Kierkegaard? But he didn't have enough Danish to know that Kierkegaard is the Danish word for graveyard. And the man said... You're standing in it. He was, he was even kind of using the right words, but, and that must have been true in Jerusalem. And one of the reasons why the news seems to have spread so rapidly, it reached King Herod. Because if you were a kind of standard Jerusalemite, you would be thinking, what are these men asking? And, and, and they trying to say something different. The king we've got is almost 70 and he's dying and he's been king for half his life. We haven't had a, we haven't had a king born here for ages. What are, what are you talking about? 
And so it's interesting, isn't it? It's, it's not because the people of Jerusalem guided them and said, you know, if you go to Herod, you'll bring together the religious leaders and the, these philosophers we have, they'll answer your question. And so their own wisdom eventually leads them to the threat of King Herod. Um, and in a way, you can have every sympathy for them because they do not know that by the wisdom of man, you can never come to know God. No matter who you are, no matter how intelligent you are, no matter what you know, no matter what you have accomplished, you can never, by your own wisdom, come to know God. Because men in their own wisdom go astray from God. And so the wise men endanger their own expedition. But then you'll notice what happens. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And the reason Jerusalem was troubled with him was because Jerusalem knew what Herod was like. He was hated. He's a man of considerable brilliance and a monster. And he was, he was abominated. And he knew it. He knew it to such an extent as the historians recorded that on the day he died, he had arranged that large numbers of people would be corralled together and executed in order that there would be genuine mourning in Israel on the day of his death. So what happens in the aftermath here in Bethlehem is completely in accord with all the historians tell us about Herod. And this was the reason why Jerusalem trembled, because they knew the implications of Herod discovering that there was a rival king. But it's the, it's the religious leaders that interest us at the moment. So he assembles the chief priests and the scribes of the people. And he inquired of them. That, that verb's in the imperfect tense, if you can remember, school grammar. It means it was happening. And so it's got the suggestion, perhaps, of repetition that he, he, he kept on in inquiring. Can it be? Tell me. Tell me. Very insistent on these Jewish scholars. And it's amazing that they give him the answer. You know, whether he had to keep on asking them because they couldn't work out the answer or whether he would say, do you agree, do you agree, do you agree? But at the end of the day, which was uh, not much time afterwards, presumably they all gave the same answer. Uh, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. There will be a king born who will shepherd his people Israel. And the place of his birth will be Bethlehem. And then we have this amazing contrast, don't we? These religious leaders just disappear from sight. Here are these wise men who have just come into town and they have no Bible. Perhaps as we saw earlier on, a couple of scraps in their own traditions that are connected to a few verses we have in our Old Testament scriptures. But uh, God has 
God has worked into their hearts and and they begun to follow the star at great personal cost, at great personal disruption. And here are these men who are the guardians of Holy Scripture. And they're asked the question, where is the Christ going to be born? And they know chapter and verse for the answer. But we're given no indication. Indeed, we're really given the reverse of any indication that they said to Herod, we'll go with you in order to find the Christ. They had the word of God, but they were totally indifferent to the Christ. They were like the people Jesus described in the parable of the sower and the soils and the seed, you remember. You remember he speaks about the seed of the word of God being sown. First of all, as the, as the farmer throws his seed around, Jesus says some of it lands on the pathway. Now what's significant about the pathway in that parable is that's where the farmer has been walking, sowing seed again and again and again and again and again. And it's met with resistance and with hardness. And here are people who have the Bible in their hands. Actually, it makes you think about our beloved land, doesn't it? When someone my age was a child, every child we knew was connected pretty closely to somebody who had the Bible, to a Sunday school, to a religious organization to being taught memorizing the Bible in, in school. But we, we despise, as a nation, we despised it. I'm yet to hear in the present crisis any of our leaders saying, it is time to pray that God will help us because we have our own wisdom, but we also have our own hardness of heart. And our wisdom turns out to be folly. Perhaps some of these people were young enough to live another 30 years and hear Jesus say, yes, you know all about the scriptures. You've had the scriptures. But you won't come to me to have everlasting life. And, and, and that was the tragedy. The, the near tragedy of the wise men endangering their whole mission was that they didn't know there was wisdom from God. And so they, they took this misstep. But these men had the wisdom of God and they were indifferent to it. And then, of course, you can see the, the mounting scale here of, of response to the coming of the Christ and his birth in Bethlehem. There's Herod seated on his throne, and what is his reaction? And what's interesting here, I think, is that, that Matthew gives us almost a psychoanalysis of Herod, step by step. He tells us, I think, in verse 4, he assembles all the chief priests and scribes and he inquires of them where Christ was to be born. First of all, that he thought rapidly. 
don't know if you I don't know if you if you've ever met a twisted person who thinks rapidly. It's an astonishing thing. They know exactly how to exactly how to plan the self-defense or the attack. And that's what Matthew is saying about King Herod. And then he asks them insistently, perhaps debating with them, which reminds one of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, where is the debater of this age? You know people like that. Don't you? They just love to debate with you about the gospel. Well, says Paul, where is the debater of this age? Before God, he is utterly foolish. And then in verse uh, 7, this is interesting. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly. Now notice that adverb. He summoned them secretly. So he didn't say to uh, the religious leaders, get these wise men and bring them here. He said to one of his spies, Herod actually had spies. He was like Elizabeth I in that sense, a whole spy network. Bring these people to me, but don't tell anybody. I'm going to meet them on my own. Now, you see what he's doing. And maybe, this is even, maybe this is even one of the ways in which the, the difference in culture and understanding and language relationship might have played into it. That's pure speculation. What's he trying to do? He's trying to make sure that these wise men never discover what he really is like. Because anybody in Jerusalem could tell them. Any of these religious leaders could have told them, do not trust him. But you see, he thinks ahead. He's got his plan. And then you notice in verse 8 that he speaks deceitfully. He says, go and search diligently for the child. And when you've found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. You know, if the religious leaders had been there, if anyone had been there, I think even these wise men, unaccustomed to all the nuances of this society, might have realized the atmosphere in the, the room had changed. Because this is the last thing King Herod would do. Bring me word, he really meant. And I will go and destroy him. Now here's the tragedy. The near tragedy of the wise men was that God had led them so far and, and they almost messed up their enterprise. The real tragedy of uh, the religious leaders was that they had the Bible. But they couldn't see that what they needed was the Lord Jesus. And King Herod, the tragedy is... What had Jesus ever done? What would Jesus ever do that would harm Herod? When you think about all that the Old Testament scriptures taught about this person, when you think about the very text that these uh, Hebrew scholars quoted to him, you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler 
who will shepherd, who will shepherd. Psalm 23, the Lord who would be the shepherd. Or Jesus' words in John 10, the good shepherd knows his sheep. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Or those wonderful words at the end of Revelation chapter 7 about the, the, the Lord leading us, shepherding us to streams of water and the tears from our eyes being all sweetly wiped out. And we've met him, haven't we? We've seen the resistance and sometimes the anger and the, the, the argumentativeness and the debating and the hostility. And uh, you want to say, what did the Lord Jesus ever do to harm you? For he came not to judge the world, but to save sinners. So what's Herod's problem? Well, Herod's problem is Herod. And at the end of the day, that's always the truth, isn't it? Here he is, and actually, he, he is actually at this point in his life a dying man. He has months to live, and he knows he's got months to live. And now he cannot let go. I have never forgotten as a young minister, I was in my mid-twenties. I think it may have been the first time I ever went to visit a man I knew would be gone from this time in a matter of days and I spoke to him and he, he gave he gave verbal answers but I could see in his eyes that none of them were really true and I remember leaving his house and thinking oh God he's not able to do it now and you see, the problem with the wisdom of this world is we always believe when we need to do it, we will be able to do it. And nobody who has ever thought that way has ever been able to do it. And here is Herod, and the Savior of the world has come and been born within the country in which he presently rules. And he's not able to let go. He's not able to let go even of that which is about to be taken from him in death. The great author of a great book on preaching in late 16th, early 17th century Cambridge called William Perkins and uh, he says in his manual on preaching, almost the, I think the first manual on preaching probably that people in England used. He said, you know, there are always seven different kinds of people in your congregation and you need to remember that when you're preaching. Well, there are only three different kinds of people here and actually they're all listed in Perkins' book. And in a sense, we can all identify with one or more, can't we, in our own history, perhaps even in our own lives. Believing we can do it, 
and not realizing we need to be brought by the Lord. Knowing all about it, but in our hearts, being paralyzed with indifference or being hostile to it. And at the end of the day, being incapable of trusting in Jesus Christ. It's monumental really, isn't it? Christmas, in some ways, illustrates everything that we see here. It is, in many ways, the most serious time of the year. For what we say is that God entered the world in order to save it. And it's so easy to live as though it never happened. And so this is a summons to us when the, when the word of God falls upon our hearts to pray, Lord, break up the fallow ground. Bring me to my knees. Humble me under your mighty hand in order that with these wise men I may be led to Jesus Christ and find the Savior of the world. Well, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we confess we we never really know what happens in our fellowship when your word is opened and read. It's an adventure to us to discover where you lead us in it. But we pray, Lord, that whatever you say and however your spirit applies it to us as individuals, we'll will respond. We'll be like the wise men who did respond to your word and not like the religious leaders and not like Herod. So, Lord, we pray, open our eyes that we may see and seek and find Christ. Make the book live to us, O Lord. Show us yourself. Show us our Savior. Show us ourselves. And show us his saving grace as the book lives for us in our hearing and in our living. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.